Ladies and gentlemen, this is The Forward Curve. Hello and welcome to The Forward Curve, a weekly podcast covering the commodity markets and the global economy. Brought to you by Gold Street Advisors, the independent research and advisory firm. In this episode, covering the events of September 20th through the 26th of 2020, we'll dive into quantitative easing and how the world's central banks are dealing with the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on their respective economies. And we'll also take a look at this week's Battery Day event held by Tesla's Elon Musk. I'm Christian Clavadenture, and joining me today will be our chief analyst, Robin Barr. If you enjoy this podcast, I encourage you to subscribe to The Forward Curve, and be sure to check out our website, www.goldstreetadvisors.com for information on what Gold Street Advisors can do for you and your company. So let's say hello to our friend, Robin Barr. Robin, take it away. Thanks, Christian. Two issues of interest uh, in this week's podcast. We had the the Fed meeting last week. So following on from there, a lot of people are asking the question, you know, have central banks run out of ammunition? And the second issue, very pertinent, yesterday we had Tesla's battery days. So so what came out of that? I think that's of interest to our listeners. But let's kick off with the uh, the key question, are central banks running out of ammunition? Now, with policy rates at or below zero in most major economies, central banks clearly now have much less room for manoeuvre in terms of rate cuts. But we believe that they do retain the ability to innovate if needed to support growth in the coming months. And we see various ways in which policymakers can ensure ample liquidity. Firstly, QE, quantitative easing. This remains a powerful tool. The Fed's balance sheet has risen by $3 trillion to now stand at $7 trillion. And the ECB has also uh, enlarged its balance sheet almost up to $5 trillion. The Fed's balance sheet could expand further, and we think it could shift QE purchases to longer-dated paper. Likewise, we expect the ECB to increase its pandemic emergency purchase program. Bit of a mouthful, let's call it PEP for short, by $500 billion to $1.35 trillion, so almost three times. And it's expected to uh, authorise that at its uh, December meeting and maybe extend PEP by six months to the end of 2021. Similarly, here in the UK, Bank of England, we think will announce an additional 100 billion of asset purchases by June 2021 at its November meeting. Let me come in here with a really general question for you. This might be a bit of a tall order, but can you briefly explain what quantitative easing is and how it works? Okay, in simple terms, it's really increasing the quantity of money. That's where the the Q comes in. And it's basically electronic printing of money by a central bank. And the central bank prints that money Uh, It enters the markets and it's used to basically buy up bonds, corporate bonds and sovereign bonds. Uh, The reason being that uh, it can lower the yield throughout the market for both short and long term debt. That basically lowers interest rates for uh, individuals with mortgages, 
corporates looking to borrow as well. So in simple terms, increasing the supply of money. If you think in terms of dollars, if you increase uh, the supply of dollars and you keep demand the same, then you will essentially devalue the dollar. So that's one way of basically supporting the economies. Lower your currency by increasing the supply, keep interest rates low, uh, enabling individuals and corporates to borrow. Does that make sense? It does. And the impression I have is that the assets that the Fed buys, using them as the example, these are all short-term assets, aren't they? They are. And that's why the Fed intimated last week, Fed Chairman Powell, in a Q&A afterwards, um, indicated that they may shift QE purchases to longer dated paper. So, yes, they're buying short term debt uh, anywhere up to five years, possibly 10 years as well. But longer dated paper, 15, 20, 30 year debt would enable the longer term interest rate to stay low and basically the so-called yield curve if you were to join all the all the dots from one year out to 30 year you have a less steeper yield curve so again that's a monetary policy tool that enables rates to stay low and, and essentially you know allow the economy to be supported almost like a patient in a uh, in emergency room basically to to stay alive keep the patient alive whilst they continue to recover understood and what else uh, are the central banks doing another thing is maybe looking at the inflation goal the recent move by the fed uh, allows it to tolerate moderately higher levels of inflation before tightening policy. So far in Europe, the ECB has refrained from taking a similar step, but it may well embark on a uh, similar plan. In the UK, the Bank of England are talking about negative rates. Some central banks in Europe, the Bank of Japan already are employing negative rates. So it's essentially allowing central banks to accept moderately higher levels of inflation, while excess capacity, because it's not being used, gets run down. Policymakers could also consider a variety of other changes to policy frameworks. We've heard about yield curve control, keeping those those yields along the curve under control, lower for longer, if you like, and ensure financial conditions overall remain accommodative and help support the economic recovery. Okay, so the Fed set an inflation rate of 2% over a decade ago, and we've rarely gotten anywhere close to that over that period of time. So you know, inflation used to be something we didn't want, but now we do, and we can't seem to get it. So why haven't we been able to maintain a healthy level of inflation over the last was it 12 years? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the cynic in me would say, well, we're not targeting the right rate. You know, we look at CPI and that seems to be artificially low. Why? Because, you know, our electricity bill, our gas bill, uh, you know, the, uh, the amount of money it takes to fill up the gas tank in, in our car to heat the house, those are going up all the time. So why isn't inflation a lot higher? So I would say we're probably not targeting the right rate of inflation, but that's beside the way. I think you could look at China and China's been exporting goods at lower and lower costs. So essentially, China has been exporting, first of all, 
disinflation or less inflation, then eventually deflation. So the opposite of inflation. So I think that's where the answer lies. China, the factory of the world, has been exporting pretty much everything that we buy today in our shops. You go to a Costco, Walmart, whatever, and you buy an item. Invariably, it's cheaper than it was uh, this time a year ago. So, so that's why I think we haven't, or the central banks haven't achieved the objective and that's to get inflation a lot higher than we have now. And it's something that we want to achieve because if you've got a lot of debt, one way to uh, to resolve that debt situation essentially is to inflate it away. So central banks, and I suspect a lot of other people, would love to have a dose of inflation. Mm, gotcha. And what else can the central banks do as far as, say, rates are concerned? Um, I think forward guidance. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I think telling us all the time that rates will be lower for longer. So um, this forward guidance essentially tells us that the path of monetary policy, the dot plot, whatever you want to call it, will stay low. And that means that markets can price out rate increases. Um, It looks as if you look at market pricing, the Fed will not uh, raise rates before 2025, so another five years. And also in Europe, in Japan, and in uh, the UK, no rate increases for at least three to four years. So you've got those three policy options. So I think central banks, it's clear, are far from being out of ammunition. The prospect of rates staying lower for longer, this presents a challenge and also an opportunity for investors, cash, uh, and the safest bonds are likely to deliver negative real returns for the foreseeable future. So to protect purchasing power, investors perhaps should keep cash holdings to a minimum because you're not going to earn very much, if at all, by holding cash. Maybe hold some gold. Gold is a great store of value, but also search elsewhere for, for yield. Maybe industrial commodities, you know, buy copper buy nickel, maybe they'll yield a lot more going forward because they're going to be going to be in demand. Interesting. Interesting indeed. All right. So let's move on to Tesla Battery Day, uh, which was held yesterday or the 23rd of September. What was the story there, Robin? Yeah, uh, a much anticipated uh, event. Uh, as always, Elon Musk is a bit of a, uh, a superstar. And so everybody hangs off every word he he utters. I think in short, what we heard was Tesla is to make zero cobalt batteries. Nickel is the metal of choice uh, and seeks to also diversify cathode types to mitigate nickel supply risk. So battery production will be done in-house by Tesla to supplement external suppliers, so not getting rid of external suppliers at the moment. They're looking for improvements in battery design, as we said, try and eliminate cobalt, engineer it out because it's expensive. This will reduce battery costs and allow for a Tesla EV costing about $25,000. So that's the aim, $10,000 less than its cheapest model because of the improvements it can make to its batteries, axing cobalt, you know, these are critical elements that makes the car cheaper and therefore people can actually afford to buy it. And that's what Musk has said. Affordability 
key to how we scale. With the elimination of cobalt, the ideal battery chemistry will be a high nickel battery. However, it's mindful of the nickel supply risk. Nickel isn't uh, unlimited in terms of supply. Uh, and therefore, alternative battery technologies can also be used as needed to mitigate the risk. Of course, what we didn't get uh, was the timeline. You know, when are we going to get a zero cobalt battery? Mm, probably a, a tougher question uh, than, than Elon wants to try to answer. But what is the projected supply-demand balance for nickel for the next few years? And uh, can remind our listeners why there's a drive to, and pardon the pun there, for a no-cobalt battery? Yeah, no shortage of nickel pretty much within, I would say, the five-year time horizon. We've come from a period of very high nickel prices you know, we reached a peak of about $50,000 uh, a tonne several years ago. That um, incentivized uh, a lot of supply, particularly in China. So I think we're well supplied. But I think beyond five years, there is a big question mark. We obviously need higher nickel prices to incentivize more supply, particularly supply of battery-grade nickel. There's a lot of low-grade nickel that can be used in stainless steel, which is about 70% of total nickel demand. But with battery demand increasing, we'll need a lot more pure nickel to uh, basically drive the demand for, for batteries. So cobalt, you know, often being called the blood diamond batteries, and that's because it's been mined in a way that endangers child workers, the child labour, wrecks the environment in the, uh, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. So they've so Tesla has started working with battery manufacturers like CATL to develop batteries that use little to no cobalt. It doesn't come without its challenges. If you're using different battery chemistries, that presents new challenges. The push to use less cobalt will drive up demand for other metals to replace it, as we're seeing with nickel. Elon Musk, a few weeks ago, came out and was urging mining companies to dig up more nickel, but in a sustainable way. And he repeated that yesterday. Um, and, and here's a comment from, from Musk. In order to scale, we really need to make sure that we're not constrained by total nickel availability. I spoke with the CEOs of the biggest mining companies in the world and said, please make more nickel. It's very important. Yeah, I love how Elon Musk describes nickel as something that's made, not mined. <laughs> so so where, <laughs> where does the majority of the world's nickel production come from? Well, it's a lot more um, available than uh, cobalt is, which, as we've uh, heard, comes from the DRC. Nickel's found on most continents in countries like Australia, Canada, for example, South America, Russia, China. I, I suppose the only place that it doesn't uh, appear plentiful would be the US, for example. So Tesla would love to have a big nickel mine on its doorstep. But Russia would be a, a good example. That said, though, indigenous activists in various countries, Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion, to give an example, they've actually pushed Musk to refuse to purchase material from Norilsk. Now, Norilsk Nickel, that's the biggest mining company 
in the world, has mines in Russia, Finland, Cuba in, in a joint venture and elsewhere. But Musk has been told don't purchase uh, metal from Newils because they're not producing it in an environmentally friendly way. And we read in the news recently that Newils Nickel was fined heavily for polluting rivers with uh, waste from their nickel mining and processing. So, yeah, those are the challenges. Producing nickel in a very green, sustainable way uh, that's going to be needed for for the batteries because we're all going to be driving electric vehicles in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Well, I certainly look forward to that, although it's going to be awfully interesting to see how uh, this whole situation plays out as time goes on. Thanks a lot for your contribution today, Robin. We really appreciate it. No problem at all, and look forward to chatting again next week. Me too. And that will wrap things up on this episode of The Forward Curve. I'm sure you noticed the short but vocal contribution from my dog, a Carolina plot hound mix named Vivi. She apologizes profusely and promises next time to wait her turn to speak. I'd like to thank Robin for his understanding and for joining me today. And of course, I want to thank you for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe to The Forward Curve on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit our website, www.goldstreetadvisors.com, for more information about Gold Street Advisors and the services we provide. Join us again next week for a rundown of the state of the commodity markets and the global economy. I'm Christian Klavodetcher, and on behalf of Gold Street Advisors, I thank you for listening. And be sure to always keep your eye and ear on the forward curve.